Vara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and I'm joined in the studio today by writer, blogger and commentator Richard Seymour to discuss his new book Against Austerity, How We Can Fix the Crisis They Made. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so you can join in today's discussion on the hashtag Navara FM, as well as find us on an ever-proliferating number of social media platforms. This show will shortly be available on the website navaramedia.com, along with our extensive, informative and stimulating archive, which we encourage you to slack off to while you're at work. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Richard, I mean, I, I guess we should uh, uh, start off by, by uh, maybe you saying a little about... Um, uh, the genesis of the book, what what uh, was prompting you to write it, and, and and what you're trying to achieve with it. Well, you know, it was um, I planned it some time ago, and it was initially just going to be a fairly orthodox recapitulation of certain Leninist truisms. Um, then, you know, there was this whole thing. I don't know if you caught it at all with the SWP breaking down and over yeah, I mean, a, rape it was a minor thing. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, well, this uh, produced, as you can imagine, some rethinking among a few of us, and um, the energy that came out of that, and it really was tremendous, um, sort of mental uh, energy and emotional energy that came out of that. Um, and a lot of um, freedom from ditching uh, old uh, orthodoxies. Well, that fueled the book, and it became something quite different. Um, and written much more in the style uh, of my blog rather than a typical sort of book mm. I might write, um, meaning very sweary and quite populist and um, sort of a, a mixture of swearing and high theory, really. It was quite weird. Um, but the idea is to um, say, okay, so we've had this crisis of the far left in this country, but actually it's linked to a generalized crisis of the left. Um, it's not just excluded, uh, restricted to this one organization. Um, and the question is, why have we got uh, so much wrong? Um, for example, uh, a few years ago, everybody was saying neoliberalism was dead. Remember that? Um, nobody's saying that now. Um, and the real question is, why isn't it dead? Why has it uh, been so resilient? Um, well, I mean, I think there are a number of things that we got wrong in our analysis. One of them was that uh, we tended to understate the uh, achievements of the right and the achievements of, you know, the dynamism of neoliberal capitalism. Um, and uh, how um, effective it's been for those the ruling class, if I put it like that. Um, but the other thing is, we tended to talk about neoliberalism in, in very simplified terms, in terms of free market fundamentalism. Now, if you thought about it in those terms, you would look at the government's uh, interventions around the world to bail out the banks and investing billions and billions and billions of pounds and the stimulus packages and all the rest of it and think, okay, so that's neoliberalism over then. But, of course, it was never that simple. We've had uh, 40 years to figure this out. Only in the last 10 years we've had the translation of uh, some of Michel Foucault's work on neoliberalism, which has given us a new angle on it, mm. to see it as a constructivist project, which is about rebuilding building society from top to bottom on the model of competition and the principle of competition and disciplining people uh, as subjects to accept this as the natural order. Um, so we obviously need to do much more comprehensive rethinking uh, than that. And this book is a, a modest um, uh, contribution uh, to that effort. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the things that I, I thought was uh, was interesting when I was reading the book is that, is that you make, and it's an analysis that I think we share and we, we've actually uh, argued for on the show before, uh, is, is precisely that the current crisis has its roots far, far, far before, um, say, the, the, the proximate cause of sort of the collapse of Lehman Brothers mm. uh, and sort of subprime crisis in the States. And it goes right the way back to the crisis of, of late 60s and 70s. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, this is also mirrored, of course, by, by sort of the, uh, the deepening or, or 
um, doubling down of the Thatcherite project, right? Now, I yeah. mean, this is the, st the stuff that we're seeing uh, going on uh, at the moment. I, but it seems to me, and, and I think, I think again, this is this is something that that, that is <laughs> is remarkably obvious if you sit down to look at it, uh, is that there's nothing like the resistance that existed, uh, you know, it, yeah. during during the Thatcherite period. Mm -hmm. Now, despite you know, despite the occasional, and you say this yourself, the occasional sort of upswing mm -hmm. uh, of struggle, uh, and, and I think one of the the sort of threads that that, that you know I, I was seeing in your book is is precisely this, you know, it was a great and I think justified pleasure uh, in swatting away that sort of many of the the sort of sentimental illusions that, that sort of plague the UK left in particular a uh, sort of left nostalgia yeah. um, spirit of 45 sort of Ken Loach stuff oh my God, um, yes. I, I, I want to say I mean, you know, I mean let's get into that a bit but I, I mean also the question that, that strikes me is that I, I wonder and I always seek to resist something that, that, that strikes people uh, as a kind of you know the, the constellation of despair right yeah. like, uh, and that's a danger right um, totally and, and I, so how, how do those two fit together I mean how do you how do you look sort of clearly and soberly at this without sort of falling into the trap of despair well there's a few things first of all um, I've always thought that the attitude of um, the so-called optimistic British left is far more desperate and depressing in the long term than anything that uh, I've recently been coming out with um, it's it's because you can't soberly face up to the reality, you're constantly waiting for a miracle, some Benjaminian um, detonation of uh, sort of the normal sort of temporal space is going to uh, create um, a, a totally transformed situation for the left. Um, and you, you could be waiting around for that forever. So, okay, so next time there's a big student movement or next time there's uh, disabled peoples against cuts or whatever, um, there's that, that's going to suddenly uh, tilt the balance in our favor. It doesn't work that way. Um, what is needed um, is precisely what's missing, which is a really uh, serious infrastructure. I mean, I don't want to dismiss those infrastructures which do exist. Um, trade unions are still very important. Um, there are still sort of civil society organizations. Churches play an important role in some instances. Um, the problem is that these are all on a downward trajectory. They're all in secular decline. And they're all increasingly timid politically and in terms of their even immediate vocation. Take the trade unions, for example. Um, the level of strike activity in the United Kingdom is at a historic low. Um, even in 2011, I mean, it spiked a bit, but it wasn't. Uh, it never reached the levels of so-called winter of discontent that everybody was talking about, not even close. Um, and these were bureaucratic strikes. That means they mm -hmm. were directed from the top. They had nothing to do with uh, the initiative of ordinary members, really, who didn't have the confidence to take this sort of action. Um, and they were, of course, more, much more interested in, uh, they were much more communicative and demonstrative. They were about uh, conveying the, the potential political clout of the membership rather than disrupting anything. And I think we have to rediscover the notion of what uh, Francis Fox Piven called disruptive capacity. You know, the idea that we all have ability, we contribute to the system, we reproduce it in various ways, and if we withdraw that cooperation, we start to disrupt things. That's our primary power. Um, but that is not... Um, in in, sorry, that's not embodied or embedded, embedded in these um, institutions um, and remaining infrastructures. And I think they're all undergoing a degree of fragmentation and decline. So we need to start rebuilding. And that's, I'm afraid, a generational task. Uh, it's not something that can be achieved overnight, which is not to say you can't win things, because we've seen in Lewisham, for example, with the hospital campaign, that you can win quite significant victories. But they have to be part of a long-term project. Um, and this temporal element of what we're doing well we used to call that labor movement that's what we need
It, I mean, it's interesting to me when I'm, I, I was reading the book that uh, one of the things that struck me is that you're, you're actually, you know, uh, although critical of the unions, I mean, you, you, you call them sort of mass democratic institutions. That, mm. um, uh, but it's right. I mean, you know, uh, and this is because uh, it, it strikes me that you come close to, to the anarcho-syndicalist critique of sort of mainstream trade, trade unionism, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously one that I share. Um, sure. But, um, you know, it, it seems to me that you're often sort of just slightly too soft on them. Um, because, I mean, my experience of the unions is, you know, a really sort of sub-Stalinist sort of bureaucratic pseudo-democracy <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, rather than something that's you know, vitally democratic uh, in itself. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, so basically my argument here is, of course, is that formal democracy and actual democracy are, are things that look rather different. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, you know, and, and I suppose the question here is like, to what extent do these institutions, these civil society institutions, these class institutions, these remnants of um, a working class movement, uh, h- how much are they still terrains of struggle? Uh, or, or, and how much are they simply no longer fit for purpose? I, I mean, I, I remain pretty orthodox in this, to this extent. I think that the Trajans are uh, essential uh, terrains of struggle. I don't uh, see any alternative to working through them. Um, even if um, you know they are, um, as you say, sub-Stalinist in their forms of internal organisation, um, I have a pretty sociological approach to this, which is that uh, I mean I, I think the lack of democracy um, and the very top-down um, bureaucratic structure has to do with defeat. It's got to do with the um, uh, destruction by um, previous governments, beginning with the Donovan Report, which was designed to smash the rank and file um, in the British Labour movement. Um, well, you get rid of the rank and file, you get rid of any initiative on the grassroots, it makes it really difficult to actually uh, do anything. Now, where I think uh, we might agree um, is that the unions are often not adequate by themselves and sometimes you need to take action independently. And one thing that's been very encouraging is development of pop-up unions, um, which I think is, uh, you know, I mean, it's outstanding. Um, I mean, it's interesting that this has been driven by uh, workers largely in the uh, higher education sector, largely not those who are well integrated into the higher education sector. Um, they really are proletarianized. They're not, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, part of the system. Um, and quite often they're migrant workers who come with... Uh, um, for different political traditions. But nonetheless, I mean, they provide a model um, and that model could be um, uh, brought to other areas. But we have to start also thinking about how do we organize uh, groups of people who are not organized at the moment? I mean, that's the biggest group mm. of people. Nine in ten workforces uh, in the private sector in the United Kingdom haven't even seen a, a, a sort of trade union rep, never, <laughs> let alone a picket line or a wildcat strike. Um, these languages, these class languages are just so outdated for many people now. This is a huge problem. Mm. So working out how to organize these people, um, I think if we start by looking at Bolivia um, and the way in which trade unions adapted to the neoliberal restructuring of workplaces, which actually made it very difficult to organize, one of the things they did was they started to build in communities and town centers. They got people to join in those at that basis. Now, I think Unite's um, strategy of community unionism is far from being a, a direct replica of this, but it's a good step in the right direction and something I think leftists can be involved in. Yeah, I mean, I, my 
problem with the, the, with the community unions is, is how horribly underfunded they are, right? By the mm. by, by the central uh, by the central union bureaucracy, right? I mean, you know, they, they can do incredibly useful things, um, but they you know they're, they're woefully under resourced, um, and you know, it, it, it it means that people will come to them uh, and then you know find themselves disappointed because you know the the mode of action that these unions take is of course always that okay, like well we're going to speak to a hierarchy and see you know and we'll give you some assistance rather than sort of building uh, capacity for people to, to actually take actions and themselves yeah um, and and this of course is you know uh, it's a relatively standard critique of the unions but 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 perhaps not surprising i guess you know one of the things that that that's important here right is, is this question of class composition um, and this is, uh, of course, again, one of the things that, that that's uh, a concern of the book grows out, I think, of the, the economic analysis grows out of uh, you know, the, an understanding of how sort of uh, you know, debt and credit have worked um, in a period of stagnating wages, but also you know, a recognition that the industrial proletariat, um, if it was <laughs> if it was ever actually, you know, really, really extant in, in the way that, that it's yes. that, that sort of the nostalgists believe that it was, yeah. um, it really is gone. Yeah. Uh, and, and the class composition is, is a lot more difficult now. Uh, and yeah. I, I wonder if, if there's something to say, and I mean, you're, I, I, you probably do have something to say about this coming out of the SWP, sure. uh, is, 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 is how this, this question of, uh, of class composition uh, is you know, often avoided by people who sort of tend to, as far as I can see, attempting to replay or reuse the same techniques that, that were effective sort of 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I, I actually think there's... Um Part of it is that in response to the defeats that were inflicted on organized labor on the left in the 1980s particularly, um, the extant far left um, responded by um, shutting the doors, uh, not just to the generalized drift to the right, but ultimately to new ideas and to reality, uh, important aspects of reality. Um, so, you know, the the interesting thing is that people who were moving to the right could often grasp important aspects of reality precisely because they didn't uh, have any reason to, uh, to cling on to the old techniques, the old ways of doing things. Um, so when you talk about uh, the recomposition of class, I think Andre Gors is very useful, even though, you know, his political conclusions are pretty well to the right of mine. Um, but, you know, if you look at how um, the class is structured today, the working class, um, there's a big part of it that um, could easily self-identify as the precariat. You know, this term that's banded about. Now, I don't like um, the proliferation of these uh, nonsensical pseudo-sociological terms for uh, that, that imply the existence of new classes willy-nilly. But in this case, it means something, I think, and it refers to the generalized tendency for work to become much more insecure um, and for ever-expanding layers of people to... Uh, I mean, and this is not new. But it's it's got uh, distinctive patterns today. Um, so people who are working in call centres, for example, would the par- be the paradigmatic examples. Um, I used to work um, at a call centre. I wrote about this recently because um, I, I I sat next to Michael Fassbender, um, who <laughs> worked in the same call centre, um, and was very serious minded. While everybody else was throwing balls of paper, he would just sit there somberly on the phone. <laughs> Um, but um, we, um, uh, it was a very mature environment. We we, um, we did talk about unionizing the police because uh, Labour had brought in certain measures that made it possible 
at least uh, in theory, for us to unionize. But what we found was that there was a huge turnover of workers. Um, there was a massive uh, number of people on the list of uh, employees who were never actually there um, and who weren't ever coming back um, because these were people who were coming in uh, like, you know, actors, comedians, musicians, writers, what have you, um, who only attended to be there for a short period and then move on. So... How do you do it when you've got a workplace like that, when it's so casualized and so flexible? That's a growing part of the workforce. Um, uh, I, I, I sense, again, this comes back to finding other um, locales uh, in which to recruit people and organize them. I mean, I, I think that your, your use of the word there is, is instructive. It's paradigmatic, actually. I mean, this, this sort of new uh, and, and rather unstable uh, kind of work. It, it just seems, and I mean, the news stories about this recently, right? Um, there's someone from NEF in the news recently saying, well, we're going to have a tiny elite and a huge proletariat. I think, well, I mean, we knew this was happening. But, but it does strike me, and it, certainly my experience of working, uh, you know, certainly the experience of attempting to organize in, in those places is very, very... I mean, it, it means that you have, uh, you know, even, even when you do make gains, and those gains are, are rare and they're impressive when they happen, um, they tend to get rolled back over time. Uh, and this is the question, I think, that, that, that builds in um, to, to the stuff that you come to talk about in, in, in you know, the final chapter of the book, Suggestions for, for Strategy, is this question of infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, it's, yeah. it's something that I go back and forth on, is, like, is, is this question, uh, which, I, which I think is a difficult question, it's not one that, to which there are dogmatic answers that, that, that are sufficient to, to the current situation is exactly what kind of uh, institutions and, and what kind of uh, uh, structures work here and, you know, what, yeah. and, and you know, are sufficient to the way that, you know, because you know, c capital has moved on. Yeah. Um, Labour, mm, not so much. Um, so, I mean, I wanted to come and, and talk about two things. One is, uh, you know, linked to this question of class composition, and it's it's uh, intersectionality, which you mentioned in the book, which is, which is, to, as far as I, I, you know, I'm concerned, is uh, is simply a way of uh, you know modelling relations within uh, and you know within the working class, right? Yeah. I mean, and and I think I think a great deal of nonsense is talked about it by you yes. know by 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 its opponents, um, but it seems to me a, a relatively obvious and instinctive sort of heuristic um, for 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 the experience of everyday life. Where does the resistance to this stuff come from? Well, there's a number of things. I mean, I think there uh, might be uh, a sort of um, a, a well-grounded but ultimately pedantic theoretical objection. I mean, my view of uh, intersectionality is it's a good common sense descriptive term. Uh, at a theoretical level, you need something else, but, you know, it'll do um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and the thing is... Um, Part of it um, is also a certain, uh, what I would characterize as economistic layer of the left who wants to hark back to this idea of working class that uh, it's, you know, and a class antagonism that's relatively simple. Um, and, you know, everything ultimately comes back to labor versus capital. And really, the, their model of dealing with gender and race and so on is to say these are illusions. This is ideological vapor. Um, the ruling class uses this to divide us. Now, there's an element of truth in the divide and rule model, but it's obviously so much more uh, than that. These are uh, material um, uh, axes of power, um, and they uh, mutually structure one another. So um, 
I, I think there's um, there's the economistic tendency. I also think there's a tendency to say, see intersectionality as being much more coherent, internally coherent concept than it actually uh, is intended to be. Um, you know, when um, there's a certain sector of the left that bang on about the intersectionalists, and they they seem to think that uh, it it means something like separatism. You know, we all um, gay people live over here, black people live over here, as if you know mm. they wouldn't overlap in any way, um, and um, this is, I don't know, the, the, I think it's linked to, um, as I say, uh, the desire for a pure form of class struggle. Um, I also think partly, that, you know, I mean, there's certain groups of people, their praxis may be linked to what they would uh, hate to call privilege, but which I think will also do as a common sense term. You know, there may be cer certain people's practice, praxises bound up with their day-to-day -day privilege which they don't want to confront. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting you say praxis there because it seems so often that this is you know this, this comes from people who do very little <laughs> yeah. otherwise. And this actually, I think this is yeah, and that's often a way of sort of you know, dismissing argument or debate. And I don't, I, think it's, I don't, I don't think it's an unreasonable way to dismiss people sometimes. Sure. Um, but I think there is a, a question here, right? Which is which is which does lead us on nicely to the, the question of ideology, which I think is one of the really really strong chapters in in, in the book is is precisely on ideology and. and the role of ideology, um, but I, I want to begin this, I guess, by by, by saying you yeah, th there is a history, and there's a history, certainly in in, in the communist movement, um, of you know the, a certain exaltation of intellectuals, mm. right, yeah, and and. This in part, I think, comes because you know historically, of course, the leaders of communist parties have been intellectuals or engaged in intellectual work, mm. and therefore there is this feeling that the communist movement ought to be a movement led exclusively by intellectuals. And I don't, yeah. I'm not sure that this is a great habit. No. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I wonder what that connection is between uh, the kind of uh, sort of theoretical work that 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 you know that, that is obviously sitting behind this book, and how this is going to relate to to any kind of you know, active political movement, political economic movement. Uh, and, and I think that question often gets sort of uh, you know, shoved to one side as sort of too difficult or, you know, uh, you know uh, an embarrassing question to ask. But I, I think it's one that, that's quite important. I mean, I think when we talk about ideology, it's important to distinguish it from uh, what you might call the battle of ideas. Um, which is where the question of theory comes in. Because, of course, I think theory is uh, very important. I, I do... I, I haven't really worked through the question of what type of organization we need. Um, I do sort of have some big uh, belief in something like the party form, but um, obviously the um, historical experiences of sort of tw tw 1920s Leninism, it won't do. Um, however, um, when we talk about ideology, I think it's important to say that um, people... Subjectivity has formed... Uh, through day-to-day -day interactions, day-to-day -day experiences. And while theory can help guide political practice and while it can help clarify certain things, um, that probably isn't what changes people's ideas in a day-to-day -day way. Um, uh, and so one of the things I argue for in the book is the idea that uh, ideology is material, meaning that it's not just vapor or something could be dismissed. It's actually a set of real practice, practices. You go and buy a paper, you go to school, um, you know, you um, pay attention to what uh, the police and the um, uh, the courts say and so on and so forth. These are material practices. Um, well, um, if you think also, uh, uh, you know, another aspect of uh, my argument is that ideology is in part correct. 
well, it's obviously not every ideological claim is correct or even has a kernel of um, uh, accuracy. You know, racist claims are not partly correct. But w what I mean by this is that they're imbricated with uh, real day-to-day -day experience and they operate on them. So, for example, I was embarking uh, when we were campaigning against the BNP. There was a housing shortage uh, that had been caused by government policy, actually, and just part of the whole sort of neoliberal growth project. Um, but um, it, uh, you know, coincided with um, the arrival of, uh, uh, you know, a number of um, uh, black people who were referred to uh, in a derogatory way as Africans. Um, but they were just black people from other parts mm -hmm. of London. Um, and uh, the BNP put around propaganda saying that these Africans, as they called them, were getting um, special treatment, money and so on to buy houses and at the expense of white people. So there you have uh, a series of ideological claims that's uh, uh, accessing and leveraging people's real, um, uh, you know, grievance and uh, disaffection and so on. Um, and that's what makes it plausible. That's what makes people willing to believe it. Of course, Another part of what makes people willing to believe it is the fact that um, these um, claims about, you know, other people getting special treatment have been drummed into everybody's heads uh, from very early on. So, um, but, so my point is that we need to think about, uh, when we talk about infrastructures, we need to think about building up um, the forms of uh, collectivism and cooperation that can withstand the tidal wave of neoliberal uh, sort of um, restructuring of everyday life. Because if everyday life is restructured along competitive lines and individualist lines, um, if uh, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and everybody's out for themselves, um, if it's a zero-sum game, then it's very hard to envision um, sharing um, your um, sort of town or neighborhood with uh, people you might deem others. And it's very easy to start othering different groups of people and to see them as competitors for scarce resources. So that's part of it. Um, but also, uh, I think that um, in sort of day-to-day -day, um, cooperative collective activity, people develop more confidence in their own abilities um, and they, um, I think, are less susceptible to being, uh, less credulous, if you like, and less susceptible to being, you know, uh, conned by politicians in the Murdoch press and so on. So uh, even if you talk about the battle of ideas on that level, there's a substrate of real day-to-day -day experience that can be um, really vital in determining how that battle of ideas will go. So one of the the, the things I think that, that's strong about this you know, engagement with, with ideology is precisely this sort of um, this rather tiresome notion. Actually, I have to say that uh, this the ideology is something that other people suffer, yeah, uh, and the left does not possess, yeah. uh, and so hence these cuts are ideological. Which of course, and, and you make the point that in 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 one very specific sense, of course they are, yeah. yes, necessarily so. Um, but 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 you know, to attempt to escape this notion that that that, that um, you know, either there is sort of some sort of technical failure mm -hmm. that the ruling class is stupid or that they don't know what they're doing yeah. or, you know, and so on and so on uh, to escape that but at the same time to escape the notion that that it's simply that uh, uh, the mass of the working class are just benighted, uh, they are deceived, uh, mm -hmm. and that we possess, you know, the, the illuminating brand of absolute, um, you know, uh, <laughs> unfiltered truth, right, that, yeah. that we are possessed of. We are not sheeple. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I find this attitude really, really difficult to engage yeah, with because I think it's precisely very bad for organising. You don't knock on someone's door and say, did you know that you're an idiot? Yeah. Um, and, 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 but, but, but yet yeah, this seems to persist. 
Um, and I, I wonder if it has its own sort of you know, ideological basis. Um, but the, I mean, the other thing I wanted to pick up on is this question of sort of the everyday experience, right? Uh, and, and one of the things that, that, I, that I think is really useful in, in, you know, when, you know, in, in organizer trainings that I've done or various, you know, the, or simply the experience of, um, you know, being in uh, an office or being in, 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 in those kinds of environments, really diminishingly so, um, is exactly this this question of sort of everyday activity, right? And this notion that you know what you're what you're not going to do is you know I you know, have someone take away you know a tea break and then go you know call for a general strike over it, right? Is you're going to build sort of gradually the confidence of you know of the people around you at work, and this leads you and you know ultimately the experience of this stuff it does lead to people you know building wider political engagement and what baffles me is always the you know the you know the, the inability of people to do this the, the 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 deep lack of confidence that exists in people around doing this sort of simple everyday organization at work uh, and i wonder about that and i wonder you know what exactly that's rooted in that's interesting i mean uh, i think you could uh, interpret this with you know the use of again Foucauldian sort of uh, discussion of uh, techniques of governmentality. Um, you, um, I mean, one of the things that Foucault was trying to do was get around the dichotomy of uh, coercion versus ideology uh, and talk about the ways in which people could be, you know, bodies could be pushed into a certain shape um, irrespective of consent, um, irrespective of ideology, without being physically, um, uh, violently coerced. Um, and that's about changing the um, set of um, uh, sort of bodily incentives, uh, the um, sort of uh, material infrastructure around you. Um, and I think one of the ways we could look at this is what happened in the 1980s was that the um, balance of risks and rewards was dramatically restructured. Um, it wasn't just a question of smashing trade unions and, you know, destroying the left um, and, you know, even sort of uh, timid municipal socialism. Um, it was really uh, about... Um, giving people something else to bet on. So if you couldn't drive up wages and income via trade unions, traditional forms of collective activity, well, you could get a mortgage on your house and watch the value of your house escalate and borrow against your mortgage. You could get shares and hope that the shares would perpetually escalate. In other words, um, you could... I mean, this is the whole point about neoliberal subjectivity. Everything you're supposed to do is has to be an enterprise. It's not just, you know, you, again, the, the, this is one of the um, questions. When people talk about neoliberalism, they often talk about individualism, and it's very easy to use that term. I use it myself. But actually, what we're seeing is a fragmentation of individuals uh, into a bundle of enterprises and projects. And we see this um, intersecting with the Internet in a particular way, with social media and so on. So if you give people... Um, that sense of themselves, that they are basically just a bundle of projects and enterprises, or they should aspire to be such. You know, think about the ideal uh, subjects that we have. The supermum, for example, is supposedly the ideal woman. She's got a career, a very highly demanding career, a kid. Uh, she's got various social projects, you know, charities and things that she does. You know, um, that's the sort of thing that you're supposed to aspire to. You can't just chill out um, and just do nothing for a few hours and uh, play video games. You've got to have a project on the go. Mm -hmm. um, and if you've got kids, you should outsource their care to somebody else. And 
you know, outsource as much as possible. Well, you you know, th this isn't just a set of balmy ideas. This is a set of practices. Um, there's a set of institutions which are designed to um, encourage this. There's a set of legal regulations that are designed, first of all, to colonize the state with these techniques and these uh, incentives. Um, and second of all, to just uh, uh, push it through the general uh, population. You've heard of the nudge unit, of course, mm -hmm. um, which, I mean, I think has now been privatized. Yes. It may yeah, yeah. be ironic. I don't know. But um, the nudge unit basically exists to use sort of um, behavioral economics to um, restructure individual behavior in this way. I don't know how effectively, mm. but over the long term, I think people's sense of, uh, you know, how things work and what their role in society is has been changed so dramatically. Um, and this is connected, I think, to the findings of opinion polls. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the Ipsos Mori uh, Generations poll, which finds that there's a dramatic shift in attitudes on a whole series of indices, particularly on things like the welfare state, a dramatic collapse in support for the welfare state among the young. Well, you know, nobody experiences mm. a welfare mm. state in the same way they used to. It's not this universalist citizenship institution. It's a very disciplinary apparatus, and it's one where you have to really fight for resources. You have to compete with other people. And the other people who get resources are almost invariably people that you've been told in the media are undeserving. Um, so it becomes a very... Um, you, you can see how all this fits together. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's certainly the, the, the experience, right, which is that, of course, the, you know, the welfare state has always had a disciplinary function, but it, it seems yeah. now, now to have nothing other than a disciplinary function. And that, that, I mean, that is, to me, what our future looks like. And this is why, I mean, you know, the, it, one of the things I think when, when, you know, when we think about sort of the conjuncture, the moment that we're in, is precisely, you know, that there is an urgency here. And yet, I, I'm trying to, you know, I and I think you know one of your, the the things you do in in the book that, that is that is really strong is to say that okay, the sense of urgency is also um, you know produced for a reason. Uh, the engagement the, the, the left has with the next big strike or the next big sort of five week, two month, six month period of struggle mm -hmm. um, is actually detrimental to the kind of stuff that that. that perhaps we need to be doing and and, and one of the things that, that strikes me here so let's let's say you do have and you know i mean i i remember uh you know the the the, the wave of student struggle now a few years ago yeah. um it, it was a period in which you know for six months i probably got no more than you know three or four hours sleep a night um and didn't notice right i mean because yeah. it was but but the number of people for whom you know coming off that peak uh, and you know a lot of hot air was you know uh, expelled during yeah. during you know that 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 struggle, right? Which is, you know, uh, oh, this is bigger than May '68, uh, and, you know, and 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 this, and, you know, and we're going to, you know, the, the worst of all, we're going to win, uh, and you know, there's a role for optimism here. I think, yeah. you know, there's a role for optimism when you're engaged in struggle, um, the, to 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 realise or, or to at least pick goals that are winnable. And the goal here, the goal here, at least partly was winnable. Um, it wasn't won, but it was winnable. Um, but watching people come off that peak. Um, and sort of atomize, um, having having been told that it was winnable, having then suffered defeat, and then having nothing to fall back on, uh, having no sort of you know, uh, 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 
institutional memory yeah. of how to deal with defeat and how to progress from defeat. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, it does strike me. And the number of people I, you know, who spun off after you know, significant police repression yeah. uh, into you know, either sort of you know, uh, <laughs> either into sort of the, the horrible realities of the court system um, or simply you know, uh, uh, you know, depression. Yeah. You know, and, and depression with a very obvious proximate cause, which is to have engaged so deeply in, in a political struggle and failed. Yeah. Uh, and and there, it does strike me that there's very little uh, that, that we have to deal with that. Um, and I wonder, you know, if there, you know, if, if there are any resources over the course of the, you know, which have been developed over the course of the 20th century that we're missing or that have, you know, you know, you know been forgotten. Uh, and, and, you know, what it would look like to be able to deal with that uh, at least better. Yeah, um, I think the point that you made about no institutional memory is so important um, because this is what we get. We get a series of struggles which, um, you know, in, in there's there's certain uh, positive aspects of um, uh, you know the the old institutions breaking down, which uh, is that it produces opportunities um, for groups of people to um, project uh, influence that they wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, I think this is true, for example, of uh, Syriza in Greece. Um, you know, they had no real social weight, but suddenly found themselves very important. Um, in the UK student movement, um, there was, um, uh, you know, an opportunity for a fairly small group of people, um, cohesive people, to project unparalleled influence. We can call, we can set the, the date of the next protest, uh, we can put out announcements, and so on. This was all very positive. Um, you know the difficulty, of course, is that they, they, you know, unless they're able to build something uh, much bigger on the basis of this, um, uh, and frankly, I don't think they were able to. Um, then, of course, they just fade into the background. They become a sort of a, a group that's uh, about, you know, self-preservation. Mm. So. Um, I think we're going to see this again and again um, with the vacuum on the left, and I'm, I'm overstating with the term vacuum, but you know what I mean. Um, this will create a space in which uh, un, relatively unrepresentative groups, sometimes quite promising groups of people, can project uh, influence uh, well beyond their actual weight. And the question will be, can they then use that productively to help s uh, stimulate the building of an infrastructure? The, the problem is that quite often these uh, those who have influence um, and money and sort of the connections with the media and all the rest of it don't necessarily have the politics to do this. Um, and I think we are increasingly lit being led down the NGO model. I mean, it's not just, this is not specific to the United Kingdom, mm. but it does happen here. I mean, you remember the Big If campaign? You remember Live 8? You know how it goes. You say that there's a big cause. You get some advertising. You get some celebrities to t start talking about it on the television. You create a buzz around it. You tell everybody to come to a specific place on a specific day at a specific time. And there's going to be fun. There's going to be events. There's going to be adrenaline. There's going to be comedy. There's going to be music. And after this euphoric day, this uh, this big event, this big high, you're supposed to go home and, well, okay, so it's all solved now. Um, and, of course, it never is. But this is the model, kind of, that we sort of have imported into our activism mm. with the stuff about, okay, let's have a march from A to B, let's march to Hyde Park or somewhere else and have a big event. Or let's have a big rally. Um, and this is sometimes... Um, 
put it like this, uh, sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it's necessary to give people a bit, a bit of inspiration, but um, it becomes quite repetitive and um, it doesn't generate results in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, uh, the whole point of a demonstration is that it demonstrates a threat. Well, at some points you have to uh, present the threat. <laughs> um, you have to mm -hmm. actually take some sort of disruptive action. Yeah. So um, this is... Um, so disruption and institution building uh, somehow have to be connected mm -hmm. here. You're listening to Navarra on Resonance FM. We're speaking with Richard Seymour about his new book, Against Austerity. Um, I wanted to move on, Richard, and, and talk about um, this question. I mean, and, and it's related, in fact. Um, uh, the, the, this, this, uh, uh, the existence of you know, these moments like Occupy, for instance, which I thought was really interesting because it struck yeah. me that, that you know, uh, it, one, it's you know, uh, an organisation largely of marginal people without yeah. you know, social weight, um, which I think is a good term for, for what was missing there. Um, but it had two things. In, and look, I was there a lot. Um, you know, <laughs> with desperate attempts to you know, make it do something. Um, and uh, you know, it struck me that, of course, there are the standard critiques of sort of um, you know, rather listless horizontalism that never actually sort of decides on, on anything. But it struck me that this was symptomatic of a deeper problem, which is a problem uh, of a failure to engage you know, with the question of a future, right? I mean, a future is going to happen. It's going to come whether you sit around and do nothing about it or not. Yeah. Um, and so, so you know, an orientation to the future, which is not afraid to, to, to make blueprints for change, right? This is supposed to be the worst thing that we can do, uh, is, is to have a vision of... Yeah. of of, an, of a new society, uh, and that was really absent there. But it was also striking to me that it was very, very specifically like a lot of these new social movements, and, and not always, you know, not always left-wing social movements. Yeah. Uh, it was that it, it was against sort of it wasn't a class-based movement. It wasn't interested really in in the question of work, of, of, of the question of, of sort of those social relations, but had sort of totemistic, uh, you know, uh, things that it, it was opposed to, so corruption, yeah, um, or, or, or had some sort of whatever banking shibboleth was yeah. trendy at the time. Um, you know, so, so, so these kind of you know, uh, conceptual movements, uh, I think, are, are often really dangerous. And you know, you see this, I, I think, you know, in in those movements, which uh, you know, and corruption is particularly a big one because it can unite, uh, you know, a significant section of the right um, with you know, relatively progressive yeah. uh, uh, people to you know, and and it serves the right, I think, rather than ours to 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 do that. And so I think I think those those movements are dangerous. And I guess the question is like how because those movements are obviously also attractive because the polling at the time says. You know, oh, you know, it was like seventy percent of people polled agree with the Occupy movement insofar as that agreement is possible. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the question is, I guess, how do how do we engage um, with with you know moments like that without the kind of condescension that was you know, rife across the entire left? Yeah. Isn't it sweet? These these kids are trying to do something, but they're such idiots; they'll never get anything done. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I think. One of the interesting things here is the um, the, the absence of a vision um, is for two reasons. One, um, it's just uh, all extant visions have collapsed and nothing has come yet to replace it. Um, and two, um, there's a kind of anti-utopian um, drift um, since, you know, 1989 to all sorts of politics. Um, and I think it's very difficult to get people to invest in uh, a vision of the future in that respect. The, when, when I visited um, the Occupy, um, I, I deliberately went and did some uh, so-called reporting, meaning I asked people a bunch of questions. Mm. Um, 
and one of the things that the, came across to me was that they, there was um, a big disjuncture between concrete uh, demands, uh, things that they really wanted, like you know redistributing wealth, you know nationalizing certain banks, you know, and being very quite good about organizing solidarity actions and things like that, and then um, the sort of general um, uh, aspiration which wasn't always clear, it was very nebulous, but a general aspiration to somehow replace capitalism with something nicer. Um, and finding, in my opinion, one of the tasks of a good left, um, and a habitable left, and, and one that will work, is to find intelligent mediations between those two levels. Um, it's not always uh, possible, but um, I think um, here... Um, we could see something happening that was very important with Occupy, which was that it was a kind of direct democracy that we hadn't seen before. So on the one hand, um, it was prefigurative. Okay, so it was a form of direct democracy. On the other hand, um, it was a demonstration, you know, saying, you know, and, and as you say, it was very moral, moralistic in its language rather than class-based. Um, and then this was also linked to something else, which was that it was um, a platform for further action in other words it wasn't it was somewhere where people got together and planned to go off and do things um and that's very good if you're uh, a marginal uh, group of people who lack social weight in other ways but who have plenty of free time you know that's one of your assets um and you know it's not a surprise therefore that the police and, and the authorities managed to uh, crush that mm. pretty quickly um I think the um, interesting thing would be whether um, this form of direct democracy um, can be linked to um, more um, traditional historical forms that we've seen in the working class, in the labor movement. I mean, it's not as if we don't have a tradition of um, uh, workplace organizing where you do actually... Um, you know, literally take control of that space and plan and organize and run things. Um, and... I mean, this is where it comes up against the question of the state because, you know, once you start to do that, once you start to take over strategic spaces and organize them on a democratic basis, well, then you've started to raise the question of the legitimacy of centralized state authority. And um, I'm not saying that you automatically get a situation of dual power, but it raises the question of how, you know, politically the society should be well organized so that would thinking about it in those terms might be uh the beginning of finding some intelligent mediations mm. between mm. the sort of the concrete and the abstract uh, I, I mean one of the things that, that struck me we did a show a couple of weeks ago which is available on the website for anyone who wants to listen um with uh, a couple of uh, friends um, who are both sort of black organizers um and and they were talking about you know the the, the failure of the, of the white left to to really grasp the the centrality of social reproduction struggles for yes. for, for, um, for for black communities uh, and and it really struck me the line that i i mean it's a line i've always liked from from the black panthers about survival pending revolution um, right, is that you have to survive to have a revolution in the first yeah. place, uh, and it strikes me that a lot of the stuff that 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 we're seeing that that seems really vital at the moment is around very basic kind of struggles around social reproduction. So around the the you know simply the possession of time. Um, which I think is is really fundamental, but but in particular housing and housing, of course, is you know, yeah. <laughs> is is the nightmare in yeah. in London. But it's also one of the, one of the ones where I think it's you know, it's it's actually quite easy for people to kind of grasp. But this is something that you can do activism, activism around. Um, 
simply because you know everyone has to live somewhere. Yeah, you know, and and you know the vast majority of people in London, you're going to be living on a street with people who are in pretty similar situations to you, which is probably not that great. Which means you're probably paying about half of anything that you earn um, or more to your landlord. This means that you can you know you know and that you don't have to get on with your neighbours. No one gets on with their neighbours perfectly, but you can you know have a conversation with them, and that's that I think is is very much the beginning of, of you know of actually breaking the taboo on on doing sort of political activism right because um <laughs> it always it always strikes me that this notion of political activism being a, this, this strange and specialist skill that exists out there is is really really dangerous um Sorry, I'm I'm I am ranting, but I mean I, I I wonder I wonder you know why there is this a sort of you know a, a failure to engage with this stuff really on the part of you know quite a lot of the left and quite a lot of the sort of extra parliamentary left. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I th- I think first of all, if we're going to talk about uh, a struggle against austerity, you cannot not talk about social reproduction because the whole thing is involved in social reproduction. And you want to talk about the public sector, you want to talk about the welfare state. Um, It is exactly about the expanded reproduction of class relations. So um, that's just the starting point. Um, Again, I mean, in terms of the reasons why, I do really think it comes back to this question of having a fairly narrow and traditional um, conception of class. But, Mm. you know, I mean, I said earlier it had to do, I think, with an economistic conception uh, or that maybe it was bound up with privilege. But also, um, you know, it's partly just the fact that all of our strategic conceptions are based upon this idea of the industrial working class. Let's go back and uh, recover what the Wobblies did back in the 1920s or uh, let's look at what the American workers did in the steel factories in the 1930s um, or let's go back to uh, 1972 and recapitulate that somehow. Um, and actually, I mean, even even then, it wasn't entirely uh, fit for purpose. But in the era of uh, the, uh, particularly the uh, the way in which the state has expanded throughout the twentieth century, um, and taken on more and more uh, social functions, um, and of course the way in which it's been restructured to become much more of a disciplinary uh, kind of function. Um, you know, so that even as we were saying before, even uh, traditionally welfare functions are, are are much more predominantly disciplinary than they were before. Um, well, this you know, this does mean that we have to inc- uh, sort of contend with the fact that a large sector of the working class, their role is essentially the reproduction of the rest of the working mm. class, and whether they do that at home as uh, domestic partners, you know. Uh, or uh, in, you know, a hospital as, you know, um, a nurse or um, in a teacher, as a teacher or, or some in some other function. Um, this just happens to be central. Um, and maybe the, the problem we have is that we haven't worked out yet how does one leverage that disruptive capacity. We know all about sit-in strikes in factories. We know all about the rank and file, or at least I think we've got every enough material on it by now. We don't really yet know how. How do you uh, leverage the contribution that is made by single mums? How do you leverage the contribution uh, that is made by uh, academic staff? Like you know, I mean, this is th- these are not simple questions. Mm. Um, so the problem may just be objective. It may just be in reality. 
It's uh, uh, it interesting here because this is this is the stuff I you know, personally think is is really vital, right? I mean, this question of, of you know, engaging d- directly with you know, how 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 you know, that sort of mode of existence that becomes uh, you know, obstructive or, or disruptive how, how, how that's leveraged um, but it, it strikes me that, that, that this is not a question on the lips of even I think that the most sort of forward looking uh, of, of you know the, these socialist sort of uh, uh, initiatives and I'm, I'm thinking here of sort of um, you know, uh, like left unity and the people's assembly mm. uh, and, and you know to a certain extent the Occupy movement was doing the same thing although with a different sort of constituency which is that it, it sort of it, convokes you know, existing sort of sort of socialist and you know sometimes you know, rather nostalgic socialists sometimes forward looking socialists and trade unionists on that sort of political and sort of discursive level rather than like attempting to look at, at, at social and economic level um so 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 it draws this you know this odd sort of collection of people together to, to one to go to sort of large events and talk about you know what they you know yeah believe which is nice but i don't think really does anything um i and i suspect doing it on that sort of political and discursive level on a level on which you know people can argue for you know three years about you know the 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 correct position on ukraine or something um which you know i mean if 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 any of these organizations were in a a position to make a difference by having an opinion on ukraine that would be nice (laughs) but 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 they aren't yeah and and so i think this is a weakness and i think i guess these these questions the question to ask is like where are the social bonds the strongest um, that, that they can that, that we can build from, right? And so, so where, where mm. does there exist, you know, sort of cohesive um, you know, groups of people? Whether it's in the workplace, I think also, but 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 you know, uh, you know, within you know, particular locales, districts, neighbourhoods, yeah. um, stuff like that, um, and also, like, I guess, what resistance kind of already exists. And this is again one of the things I yeah. think that, that the left generally is pretty bad at. Is actually realizing that there exists a huge continuum of resistance, um, whether that's in, in in the forms of sort of um, you know uh, evading you know the the watchful eye of a tax man if you're on you know low wages, mm. uh, whether it's you know uh, you know organized anti police activity, which is you know which is huge in London, um, and the left seems to me very very bad at at, at seeing this stuff, um, mm. and so I guess like uh, you know in terms of you know how to bring that into an organizational form. I'm I'm not looking for the the answer now. I mean, we have five minutes left. So I I guess just some sort of, we we can dilate on on those questions for a bit. Is exactly, you know, uh, how to avoid this. And I think, you know, we're all guilty of this at times, is that when when something suddenly comes to light, we parachute in, patronize people a bit, and then disappear. I mean, the future here, and I, you know, I think, you know, and, and, you know, the SWP is particularly bad at this. Um, I think the future, here is, is you know is that question of like how do we dissolve this notion of as political people looking at the working class as something we're not part of but act on like, yeah. I, and this I think is a real real problem and like how do you how do you super, you know overcome that uh, and you know what organizational forms are going to be useful I think in in, in the next couple of years about this okay um, well I think you're right um, in that um, we uh, got this um, uh, recession. 
and the subsequent politics of austerity badly wrong. Uh, we anticipated, certainly in the SWP, I remember, um, we anticipated very strongly that there would be a very traditional type of upsurge of industrial struggles. You know, this was going to uh, come down hard on organized uh, workers, particularly in the public sector, who would do the traditional thing, pressure uh, for strike action, um, and, you know, they start to rebuild their confidence. Um of course, it didn't work out like that. And one of the things that people got wrong about this administration particularly was they said they're going after everybody at once. And if they go after everybody at once, that's psychotic, that's crazy. They'll just turn everybody against them. But they didn't. They were very careful to target, it, uh, target their cuts, their offensive against specific social categories um, and even inventing new categories, the bedroom tax grandeur, you know, this idea. Um, and the, the so therefore the forms of resistance that we've seen have not conformed to the industrial model, but there have been various types of political resistance and sometimes socioeconomic resistance, which, um, you know, we've seen um, the um, sort of disabled people's action. We've seen the hospital campaigns. Um, we've seen, I think, actually, this is also linked to what has been called fourth wave feminism, you know, the feminist upsurge. Um, so, um, and of course, we have, we have seen elements of trade union uh, struggle as well, but then we, we always do. Um, so finding out a way to implant oneself in that without being uh, parachuted in and then just walking off the next day, I think is really important. One of the things that I, I mean, I'm, I'm a very much a, an enthusiastic member and supporter of left unity. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't imagine that it is the final form of any organization that is needed, but um, it's moving in the right direction, I think. Uh, one of the things that I've argued for, and I think others have argued for, is that people um, in uh, left unity um, should be, as sort of uh, members of left unity, implanted firmly in social movements, campaigns, um, and local struggles as much as possible. And that left unity should put resources behind that, making that possible. In other words, rather than just doing things, as you said, at a discursive level, um, actually building up relationships on a day-to-day -day basis um, by doing something useful and, and constructive um, and helping to articulate um, these different struggles, because the problem is they're too fragmented, they're too scattered. Helping to give them uh, a political and ideological articulation would be highly useful. Mm -hmm. So... Um, if it's not um, left unity, uh, it'll undoubtedly be some other organization, but that's what I think is needed. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I mean, this I mean, it does strike me, two minutes, um, that, that, that we do have uh, all to play for, really, because we have coming, I guess, in the next three or four years, the return of interest rates is going to cause um, probably a second uh, crisis of credit. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, there is really, in real terms, very little you know, in a recovery uh, you know, that, that, that is tangible in terms mm -hmm. of you know, uh, those of us who actually have to live under it. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, go out with, like, uh, you know, what would you advise people who are listening to the show to, to, to do in the next year? Well, I wouldn't uh, be rushing out to any barricades. Um, <laughs> I mean, if there's something kicks off, then by all means take part. But I think uh, this is, uh, there, there is a, a space and a time for rethinking regroupment and reorganization um rethinking start to rethink the past uh, failed ideas things that haven't gone, gone so well in the past uh regroupment um obviously the existing forms of left organization the division of labor on the left doesn't work we need to rethink the way that works reorganization or rebuilding we need to start rebuilding infrastructures 
three R's. There you go. Brilliant. Uh, Richard Seymour, thank you very much. Uh, Against Austerity is out now. Uh, I'm sure many people listening will now go and pick it up. Uh, This has been Navarra Media. We will see you same time, same place next week. Thanks.